And well, we'll be live. Hold on. Just making sure it hasn't shown up yet. I think it's on a time, uh, like time lapse or whatever. Okay, here we are. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Plotlines. I'm your host, Connor. And today we are talking about the Catholic Church in Texas. Before we get going, please like, share, comment, and subscribe. And um, please join our Discord if you want to continue the, uh, the conversation with the community. And, um, well, so if you want to support this channel as well, and also if you want to be a rosary extremist, apparently, buy Bishop Sheen rosaries. Uh, use the code PLOTLINES10 uh, to get, I think it's 10% 10, 10 off. Hold on a second. That's bad. Um, but anyway, so today, let me just make sure I've got that right. But... Today, I have Luis Medina from Reconquista Network, as well as a contributor for The Meaning of Catholic. Welcome, Luis. First time on the podcast. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me over. Glad to be here. And then I have Jason and Mark, and apparently Mark and Jason. Um, <laughs> you have Mark and Mark and Jason. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, yes. Mark and Mark and Jason uh, from the Tradmen podcast. Also, first time uh, on this on the channel, but I, you guys have seen me probably on Avoiding Babylon. Oh, we're uh, old friends now. Yeah. What? We're old friends now. Old friends, yes, indeed. Old I told you, you're in my family now. You're my wartime consigliere. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks for having us on your show, uh, uh, Connor. Appreciate yeah, definitely. It. Thank you. No problem, guys. It's uh, just an honor having all of you and um i'm looking forward to learning more about texas the history of texas and texas culture as well as how the church has affected texas and generally just where the catholic church in texas is going so luis would you mind starting us off with a brief history of uh texas just in general Absolutely. Uh, glad to do a brief history of Texas and Catholicism. As many of y'all know, Texas is known for being a conservative state, a religious state. As a matter of fact, Catholics make up a big chunk of the uh, religious population here in the Lone Star State. But it had actually very humble origins and beginnings, even a mystical ones, believe it or not. So we start with Juan de Oñate, this Spanish explorer that left Mexico, modern day central northern Mexico, Zacatecas, which is known for mines, and he went exploring. And the this is kind of a disputed claim. But this is the one that actually has the most backup, if I can put it that way. The first Thanksgiving in the U.S. was celebrated in Texas when Juan de Oñate 
cross what is now known the Rio Grande or the Rio Bravo, uh, the um, border river between Texas and Mexico. And he went and uh, celebrated with a Thanksgiving mass, literally specifically because of that. Why? Because crossing uh, the Chihuahuan Desert in southwest uh, Texas, uh, northwest Mexico, everybody who knows that area, it's kind of rough country. So instead of following a traditional route, he went middle you know, of the country in the high desert. And it was a rough expedition. So to celebrate that you know, survival, let's put it that way, in 1598, if I'm not mistaken, um, that's when they celebrate the first mass. But uh, also from there, different uh, missions were founded, just like any other, you know, Catholic enterprise. Franciscans had a big presence in the Lone Star State. Um, we also had, obviously, before that, explorers. We don't know if they celebrated mass before Oñate or not. For example, Núñez Cabeza de Vaca, uh, which translated literally his last name is Cow's Head. Um, he was in Galveston. He was a merchant, first merchant in Texas, first, first European to you know, set foot in Texas in what is now they known as Galveston in 1528. We just don't have any records. Probably it's likely that we had a mass or some sort of uh, event like that. We just don't have records of it. So the closest we can found is Oñate in 1598. From there, missions were starting founding like what is now day El Paso, the oldest permanent mission in 1682. Uh, and then others, you know, across the Lone Star State. But there's often a quick fact in the history of Texas that people miss or forget. Catholicism in Texas, in my estimation, and, and based on records, really started flourishing under Maria de Agreda. You know, I don't know if you heard that story, Our Lady in Blue, which is essentially this nun in Spain. Um, I forgot right now the uh, uh, sisterhood that she belonged to, but they were, and, and let me tell you a quick story about it. So this lady in Spain, she will have this just transfer visions and she will come back and say, hey, um, I'll have this just vision dream that I went to a foreign land I've never been to because they're cloistered nuns, by the way, they were not uh, traveling and spoke to people I never seen in my own language, but they responded in their tongue and we both can understand each other. Um, and who knows, whatever. So they started like, just recording these things. Um, and this lady is Maria de Agreda, who wrote uh, many books, many treatises. She was a mystical nun. Well, it turns out that she was actually having bilocations. And she was traveling all the way to what is now in West Texas with an Indian tribe meeting. It's called the Humano tribe, which is around New Mexico and West Texas, the area of San Angelo, all that area. And throughout the years, this lady will meet and evangelize and will give descriptions very quickly about what the Texas landscape will be to back in Spain again. It was all this plant, this river, and there's this chieftain who like literally has had a missing eye and just incredible details. Well, eventually explorers put things together in reports and they matched. Turns out that this lady was evangelizing this tribe. And when the uh, Franciscans left from Florida all the way to Texas to start exploring and evangelizing in around 1602, uh, when we started happening, all of a sudden, these Franciscans and explorers encountered about 3,000 uh, Humano Indian tribes. And they were scared because of like, what's going on here? And the Indians come in to, and, and request to be baptized and be taught about Christ. And they're like, how do you know about Christ? Well, this lady comes to us and you know, teaches about Christ. And they, she told us that whenever we see some Christian men, men of God, uh, to please ask them to be baptized. So when they thought it was going to be like some sort of conflict, it turns out they was like, you know, asking for baptism. So that's kind of where like everything started germinating in the Lone Star State. I know it's a little bit of a longer story that I wanted to tell, but that gives us the context of what we're facing in Texas. And that's why it's so special. 
Um, when the last time Maria de Agreda visited the Humano tribe, she left and said, hey, uh, I'm leaving, but some holy men are coming. When you see him, ask him to be baptized and to teach about Christ. So when you go to Fort Worth in uh, St. Patrick's Cathedral, which is the main church here in Fort Worth, Texas, where, where I live, in the south entrance, there's a little painting, you know, commemorating that event, you know, Our Lady of Blue. So that's when starts things, kick, you know, kicking in gear. As we know, Texas seceded from New Spain, well, from Mexico, but Mexico was New Spain. So you have like secession after secession. Uh, and there was a period where Texas uh, diocese was tied to northern Mexico, the diocese of Monterey. So eventually they split. Texas has its own thing and it starts growing. And we have a large influx of Protestants, particularly Methodists. You know, we have a big chunk of Southern Baptists that y'all can uh uh, you all know, I know a lot of great friends from Southern Baptists, but Methodists actually become the main uh, dominant among the Protestant religions here. Long story short, nowadays, Texas has about 20% of the believing population is Catholics, the largest Christian group, uh, and it's a big chunk of the population. It used to be exclusively or almost exclusively Hispanic. It's actually now a little more diverse, uh, particularly between Hispanics or Latinos in white or Anglos, or whatever we want to call it. Um, it's actually uh, the biggest trend was with boomers, believe it or not. Uh, there's a lower trend among younger generations, but that's just the trend we've seen across the nation is more likely that has to do than, than anything else, sadly, you know, and Catholicism is still growing um, in the Lone Star State. We have a growing trend, Tarrant County, where Fort Worth is based, is now in the double digits with Catholic population. It used to be always in the single digits. Uh, it's a recent phenomenon that's great, Fort Worth. Uh, was known historically for Protestant, you know, foundations. There's a Baptist seminary based in Fort Worth, you know, that, that tells you how much the Protestant presence is here. Well, Catholics now have a big history here and things are looking uh, up. Uh, and a lot of people like to see it negatively, negatively, I'm sorry, but there's actually things to uh, look forward to. And I will close with this. The uh, ordinary, which is the right that uh, Pope um, Ratzinger, uh, Benedict XVI allowed, the diocese is based in Houston for the ordinary right, you know, for the whole country. So I think his name is Bishop Lopez, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. No, Bishop um, Lopes. Lopes, Lopes, yeah. Lopes. He's so, yeah. He's a Portuguese descendant, if I'm not mistaken. It's not a Spanish one, but yeah, same. Uh, yeah. So in other words, it's Texas. It has one of the biggest dioceses, by the way, if I'm not mistaken, is the Houston diocese. It's the second biggest one after L.A. Uh, and I could be wrong on that one, but it's among the top dioceses in the whole country. So that's in, in synthesis, like the history of Catholicism in Texas. Awesome. But yeah, that, uh, thank you for that. Uh, I love how sort of it's sort of this mix of um, sort of the Spanish origin, as well as with the <laughs> invading, uh, with the invading Americans, basically. Uh, and then sort of that mix that comes if I'm not mistaken, cowboys come is originally a Hispanic um, tradition, is it not? Los caballeros, yeah, yeah. From from when the Spanish came to what is now in Texas, they saw this vast land. I never had the, I never been to Europe at least yet, you know. But I've uh, been through all North America, and they saw this vast land, and they adapted the charro, uh, which is the Mexican equivalent of a cowboy. Uh, ranching, ranch hand, in other words, from Spain to the New World. And that's when the charro tradition evolved. Well, that tradition moved to Texas and the charro became the cowboy. And, and that's what we have actually in that connection. 
that animal husbandry skills and traditions that come all the way back from Spain. And that's just why, by the way, they brought cattle like Longhorn on a side note because they did well in this kind of climate, you know, cattle in this certain kind of climate to adapt and adjust. And the rest is history. Gotcha. So Mark and Mark and Jason, uh, would you get, is there anything you guys want to add? Well, there- uh, I, I'll just uh, go ahead, Mark. I just want to make a quick comment. Uh, but I was just going to say, man, after hearing uh, Luis talk there, man, I'm way out of my league here. I think that was good. <laughs> <laughs> Jason, you didn't take you didn't take Texas history when you were in uh, elementary school. Oh, uh, yeah, we had to seven. You just grade. didn't pay attention. No, I did. I just didn't know all those. <laughs> well, they, there's well, also. It- and, 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 and it also like like some of this stuff is going to be interesting and new to me, especially from the Catholic perspective, because as as you know, Mark, I grew up in a Protestant heritage background, so we didn't go into the Catholic history of Texas. You know, it was more of a Protestant viewpoint of, and, of the history the, of Texas. The history of the Catholic Church in Texas, because if you know anything about if you know anything about Mexico, the the, the history of the Catholic Church and the politics of Mexico plays a very important role in how Mexico's political system will develop over the years and the different revolutions and things like that. There's always a tension between um, the government and the Catholic Church. And um, there's there's also tension between classes in Mexico that are seen to be a little bit more aligned some in some cases with the Catholic Church than in others. And this is and, and this will manifest itself in Texas also in her independence movement. Um, one of the problems that uh, Mexico had is that there, this big, vast region called Texas, there weren't really a lot of Mexicans who lived there. Um, and so they decided to come up with this system of land grants to Anglo settlers from the United States. If you wanted to come and live in Texas, you could do that. You only had to do two things. You had to become a Mexican citizen you had to convert to the Roman Catholic Church. That would be your official religion. Now, whether or not you practice that or not is, I mean, there's, like I said, there's nobody mm-hmm. up here other than you to enforce, to, to enforce yeah. that. So, um, <laughs> yeah. And then in the 1830s, uh, a, a, a generalissimo took control of the Mexican government. His name was uh, uh, Antonio Lopez, uh, Lopez Santana. de Santa Ana. Santa Ana. And Santa Ana basically he 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 created the federal district that we now know de FA that where Mexico City is sort of the centralized form of government. He decent he he completely centralized government in Mexico, and this led to not only Texas but also seven Mexican states going to open rebellion against Santa Ana. Uh, and then Santa Ana would eventually be defeated in his in the war that he traveled to. Uh, he traveled all the way up his army all the way up into Texas, and then it was defeated at San Jacinto. But what's interesting about the relationship of the Catholic Church is that the relationship of the Masonic Lodge is like also right there too, because most of these founding settlers uh, from these Anglo regions were, when they converted to Catholicism, they were also Freemasons. And I think this is before the official uh, ban of Leo the 13th. So I, 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 I think you could get away with it back then, but I think it was still frowned upon. But I, so it's just an interesting thing. You'll see all these plaques and everywhere, all over you go to the Alamo and, and the San Jacinto monument, you'll see a lot of Masonic plaques and it's just sort of an interesting thing. But one of the things that they were rebelling against Santa Ana for was a return to the 1824 constitution, which guaranteed these settlers their land rights. But the 1824 constitution also 
proclaimed the Roman Catholic Church as the official religion of Los Estados Unidos Mexicanos. And Santa Ana, being a 33rd degree Mason, wanted to abolish the Catholic Church as the official religion of Mexico. This was so it's kind of one of those interesting things that they were that the war was fought over that not a lot of people know about. So there you go. It's true. And an interesting fact about that also uh, with Santa Ana, um, he brought this like centralized system. We get that actually from the French. I know the English get a lot of right. wrath because you know the Freemasons and all that. And and sure, at one point there was a lot of odds. We're odds with the English. But really, if we think about it, um, the lingua franca back then was not English. It's America, actually, after World War II that made possible for English being the lingua franca. Before that, really, the diplomatic language was French. Um, yeah. And this actually has a lot of spiritual connotations, at least from my perspective, um, because it was the French, even with the Bourbon dynasty, who once settled in Spain, they brought concepts before the French in Spain uh the hispanic style of government which translated to texas by the way and texas real estate is one of the most complicated in the nations because some of the land grants go all the way back there in spanish uh and this is why land rights are very different in, in texas versus the rest of the nation um and it makes it really difficult for example for oil exploration it takes a lot of resource or real estate because they really have to go all the way back to records and, and uh, harmonize everything so anyway one of the characteristics of spanish um, uh, royalty or monarchy or system of government, whatever you want to call it, is it was like more autonomous, kind of subsidiary type of uh, style. And they had like, you know, anything you can fix local, we'll take care of a local. And the federal level is just the, the must. That's when we intervene. The French actually centralized and created bureaus, well, bureau in Spanish, you know, bureau in English, same with French. And that thing didn't really uh, resonate with northern Mexico or what is now they know the Mexico, because you got to keep in mind, all of that was still Spain, new Spain. I always said it. There's, there's not such thing as Mexico. Mexico is a modern invention with all the respect. Uh, everything was Spain. And you have this cultural clashing with this, you know, French style, you know, centralized power that didn't sit very well. At the Anglos, also very sovereign, independent worldview, whether we like it or not, it's just another reality. So it was just a matter of time that things were going to clash. Santa Ana, being of that old, you know, French school, uh, in fact, they he used to be a self-proclaimed the Napoleon of the Americas. That's how you know yes, much. Yeah. In, it's just. Uh, which wow. is kind of silly, obviously. It was not, <laughs> he couldn't back it up. So uh, anyway, that's, that's part of the reasons among others well, for the clash that eventually happened. And, the, yes, it is. and Santa, Santa Ana was a very interesting character in person. He is. He it, is it's an interesting it's, character in history. It's, yeah. it's, it's almost like, you know, he would swing with the times as far as what he <laughs> believed and what he did all the way yep. up to his yeah. death, you know? <laughs> yes. And like yeah. a modern politician, right? Yeah. And you, and you talked about the, 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 the different schools of Freemasonry, the English schools and the French schools that as, as, as not great as the, as the British school of Freemasonry as the Scottish rights and everything, the vehemently and militantly anti-clerical strain of Freemason comes from France. And that is the yeah. school that you will see um, planted in Mexico. And that is the reason yes. that is the, that is the sole source for all of the tension between the government and the Catholic church in Mexico. In fact, if those beautiful Christmas flowers, the point, the poinsettias, poinsettias. are named after Poinsettier, Poinsettia. who was, who, yeah. who was, who was the Frenchman who brought Freemasonry to 
Mexico. And so it's kind of a weird thing to see all those flowers on the altar. It's so beautiful, but yeah, it's <laughs> another interesting story there. But anyway, yeah, long, complicated yeah. And, and bloody history uh, up through the, the middle of the 19th century there. Yes. I mean, Texas, you can't uh, disconnect it from Mexico. It just is. You Agree. Can't disconnect it from America now. I mean, it, it's all part of the same or, you know, at different times, it was all part of a you know, either me- Mexican uh, purview or, or, or I guess, sorry, New Spain purview and then um, uh, American purview. And, you know, it's the only state in the union that came in voluntarily in sort of a really voluntary way. I mean, not in the voluntary way as like, I mean, they vote, they voted to join in the sense that um, the new government that took over after the Texas Revolution you know, obviously, the, I would assume the Hispanic population uh, living in Texas, though it might have been um, small or small at this point, you know, just, uh, you know, wouldn't have that much influence at the time. And then it's interesting just for that Hispanic population to sort of come back into focus kind of in the last maybe 10 to 20 years, 30 years. Yeah. Uh, it's it's interesting to see that sort of um that cycle kind of come back in, especially as Americans are not, um, and maybe this is different in Texas, or but are not having as many children, and uh, businesses are in need of labor, and they're willing to get labor as cheaply and however however they can do it. Well, it's it's important to remember that, and 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 here's what we think we're talking about the the Hispanic population versus the the, the white population. In 1836 at the Alamo, every single person who was fighting there at the Alamo, both for Santa Ana and against him, was a Mex- was a Mexican. Every single person, except David Crockett and his and his and his group, <laughs> yeah. they 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 weren't citizens of Texas yet, right? Tennessee they, volunteers, Tennessee, yeah. But these yeah. these men had not. These men, you'll see, the flag that was flying there was a was a green, white, and red flag with the 1824 across it. What they really wanted was a return to the Mexican constitution of 1824. They hadn't declared independence as a, as a nation until March the 2nd, but none of the Alamo defenders were at that convention because the siege would happen on March the 6th, a few days later. And so some of the original drafters of Texas independence were Mexicans. And and I mean, Hispanic Mexicans, Um, Lorenzo de Zavala actually was the drafter of the Texas uh, uh, declaration of independence. Uh, I know that. Juan Seguin was a, a hero, a mm-hmm. defender of the Alamo, and there were many other uh, uh, Latin uh, defenders of the Alamo who, who yeah. fought and died valiantly at the Alamo. I'm glad but, I get to hear this because I, uh, yeah, his, as as a Midwesterner, you don't, you really don't get much yeah, of anything. No. Yeah, the, the racial uh, tension his, his would Hispanic, come a little bit later. But yeah, yeah. I was going to say Hispanics at Tejanos played a huge part. Oh yeah, and and Texas independence. You know, it was. I mean, I mean, there was even many. You know, uh, his, Hispanic Texans, Tejanos, and stuff like that. That were not yeah. friendly or or in favor of Santa Ana. Right. Yeah, in fact, I mean, and this is I know controversial for our, our brothers up there in the north, like you know, northeast and all that. But even the, during the Civil War, um, the 
when you go to like, like different, you know, Texas is known for the six flags, right? Because you used to belong to France, New Spain, Mexico, the Texas Republic and all that. Well, when you go to Laredo, Texas, you know, which is a border town with no Laredo, Mexico, right there, an important actually cross point between two nations when it comes to commerce. It may not, it's not necessarily like, and I just say this with all due respect, a very touristic type of town you know but it's a very important place because there's a lot of uh materials crossing there tom delay i don't know if you're into politics I remember, from that yeah. area the hammer yeah uh he was the uh, disgrace later in politics well he's from that area that area has a lot of relevance when it comes to commerce well Loretto, Texas is an airport with seven flags, you know, because uh, it's the only city that has seven flags instead of six. And it's because there's even a brief period of independence between South Texas and Northern Mexico, which is Little Republic, the Rio Grande Republic, too. So there's a lot of, you know, you see overlapping tensions between governments and its people in both sides of the aisles. Well, even during the Civil War, by the way, the General Benavides, which was from that area, same area of Laredo, Northern, like Northern Mexico, South Texas area, was the highest ranking uh, military member of the Civil War. He was for the Confederacy, uh, but he was here in Texas. General Benavides uh, was one of those guys there. So my point is uh, to highlight Texas when people wonder, geez, but what is going to look like? You know, we have a bunch of Hispanics here, like, I don't know, like in Minnesota or somewhere where there's not really a historically Hispanic presence on like the South or the West here in America. Well, just look at Texas, you know, because often people wonder, is, is it going to overlap? Is it going to overpower one thing? And not really. They just mesh and eventually they work. So you have places like Texas where you have a lot of Hispanic culture without losing the Texas culture. You know, they kind of enrich each other and you can actually be both and still have allegiance to America. Well, this is the beauty. Texas leads us in that way. And that example is not two societies at odds, but actually two societies enriching each other. I would assume it would look like, I don't know, Italians and, and, and Polish and New York. I don't know, something like I'm not from that area, but mm-hmm. well, uh, it's I, something similar. Yeah, and, so, and Texas, I was just going to say real quick, yeah. Tex, Texas culture wouldn't be the same Texas culture without the Hispanic influence on it. I mean, Definitely. period. I mean, there's a lot there's a lot of uh, overlap, like you were saying, and a lot of things that Texas culture took from it. So, uh, you know, I what you were saying there about the blending. Yeah. Without, without the blending, there's no Texas culture as we know it. Jason, you've yeah. been in, you've been in sales for a long time. I, no, I, I'm I kept, not in sales. I thought you were in sales. What do you no. do for a living? <laughs> I am in fields, oil field, field services. Okay. Well, oh, I, yeah. I came from, from a sales background and, and it's, it's a common practice <laughs> when you go visit a client, we could come, argue you're still in the sales business. We could, <laughs> <laughs> when you go visit a client, you bring food. You, you bring, yeah. you bring some kolaches, you bring breakfast tacos, you bring something. Yeah. I lived for a little bit in Chicago where I did sales for about a year. They had never, I, I brought food to a client once and they were like, what do you want? Why are you bringing me food? Like, what is that? <laughs> I didn't ask for that. I don't want that. That's a Hispanic thing. That's a Latino thing. If you go, if you visit, if you go to visit somebody, you bring, you bring something, you sit down, you have coffee, you have, a, it's, it's a very yeah. uh, social type thing. I, and I remember when I was in the Midwest, Midwest was the very first place I'd ever heard of people getting offended by hearing Spanish speaking. I'd never heard of that before. And they, they were so upset because uh, I, I taken a summer job. I was waiting for law school to start. And I take a summer job at a hardware store. And on one side of the little paintbrush, then the thing was in English and on the other side, it was in Spanish. And the, my, my little supervisor, she's like, make sure you put it facing English. Our customers don't speak Mexican. And I was like, 
Well, Mexican's not a language, but thanks for trying. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and, and you American. Know, while, while I'm not fluent in Spanish, I'm surprised, you know, I surprised myself just seeing it all the time, how much you pick up. And and if you go to South Texas, particularly, like, you, oh, you know, as far as Freer, uh, yeah. Cuero, yeah. Yoakum, and even further south, mm-hmm. almost yeah. – Almost every white guy down there speaks Spanish to a certain degree, if not fluently. It's like Quebec. In almost every case. It's like if you go to Quebec, people know both French and English. And it's just that's they're both languages are sort of the official language of Quebec. And I've always looked at Texas as kind of like that, at least at where I was growing up. Uh, you know, and when court starts, uh, the, the bailiff will read, will do the instructions both in English and then he'll do the instructions in Spanish. And people might think that that's a new thing because of the influx of immigrants. They've been doing that yeah. since I was a kid. I, I, I think it's always been like that. I, maybe I could be wrong, but gotcha. I've been to Quebec too, actually. Uh, it's a beautiful place, but I've been noticing Quebec that uh, there's a certain resistance. There's a little uh, like tougher tension between the Anglo side and the French side. Oh, really? in Texas, okay. it's not it's, uh, it's beautiful. I mean, and I, as weird for a Mexican guy to love maple so much, but I love maple. I mean, you have no idea how much I love it. Just, I, I'm addicted to that stuff. It's my favorite thing. Like Anyway, so um, I go there and I was having a field day it's for like, there's no spicy food, but other than that is awesome. And when I was there, there's certainly a tension where you try to speak English and I have to say like, no parle anglais, and like in what I knew, I mean, no parle français, whatever, like I don't speak French. Um, so they're like, okay, you know, they kind of uh, adjusted a little bit. Whereas here, uh, it's not a big deal. And religiously speaking, you see a lot of Texas Catholic schools here and a lot of that's how a lot of Protestants eventually come to the faith because I get exposed. It's not necessarily the most efficient way or has not been necessarily the best managed system. But the exposure when you come to Texas, you're going to know you're going to have both cultures and you're going to you're going to have Catholicism here in this state. Even if you're a Protestant, you just get used to it. That's just part of the culture here in this Lone Star State. The irony from, in my point of view, is Texas, a lot of our Catholic roots are actually far west Texas, which is usually usually often the most forgotten the most part Protestant. of the state. Yeah, yeah I was... it's like, it is, yeah, it's weird, but it's actually where everything started, most of it for us, you know. But well, I, I, I was thinking along those same lines, because I had mentioned to Connor before the before the show when we were talking uh, offline one day that, yeah, like Texas, if you just take it and split it in half, East Texas, in general terms, identifies completely differently than West Texas. Oh, yeah. So, oh, yeah. like, so like East Texas is going to – if you ask if somebody from East Texas what part of the country they're from, they're going to say they're Southern. And Southern, yeah. of course, is heavily Protestant. You go to West Texas, generally speaking, they're going to identify with the Southwest, more of the, the Catholic side. So Texas, you know uh, – the, the state's so big and so diverse. It depends on where you go, where you're going to find out how, what the majority of the people align to religiously, uh, uh, culturally and stuff like that. And then you go to Austin where everybody, but Robbie is an atheistic <laughs> communist. I, I lived in Austin five years, man. And I gotta say, this was a side note. It, it was the first four years were rough. And honestly, I never understood why. And it was during my Protestant stage two on top of that. And I despised that, you know, city for a while, but then Actually, <laughs> believe it or not, Austin taught me a lot of uh, about St. Paul and the love for the Corinthian church because I, I actually live in Austin, Riverside, uh, five minutes away from downtown Austin. So it was not like I live in Round Rock or a suburb. I live right there and I work at a retail store 
in South Congress. So I got to see all the freaks and weirdos and you name it. Like, oh, yeah. I was like so, so to it. It's all the way SoCo, you know, gentrification, you name it. Well, that's my cool. co-workers were actually mostly atheists and liberal and commies and all that. So that's kind of like when I honed my skills to like argue for the faith and all that. Well, that's awesome. in Austin, I realized this, this town is like at that time I had, I had a really bad attitude about Austin. And then eventually the last year I was like, no, I kind of get it. Now I get what St. Paul tirelessly, patiently, lovingly, you know, always care about the Corinthian church. And it was the church that was usually the, like the wretched church, the most liberal church, you know, as you know, your Bible history. Uh, and I was like, yeah, I can see why, you know, I can see how. It's not that you're approving of that wretched culture per se, if I can use that expression, but it's like it, it helps you, it corners you to become more loving or just hardened. So you choose as a Christian, you always choose the love option. Well, Austin taught me that. That's the place, by the way, that the, my first daughter was born in in South Austin in St. David's uh, Hospital, a uh, Catholic or origin. Uh, and now it's probably a corporation, but so <laughs> there's a lot of things you learn in, in, in life in Texas and definitely Austin you don't have that religious, um, how can I say, like vitality, you know, that you find in different cities like Houston, obviously, or San Antonio. Yeah. But the people who are committed in Austin, they're very committed. They actually have this fire within them that is enviable. You know, I, I see that. I'm like, man, I wish I could have that here in, in Fort Worth because we're more complacent, you know, because it becomes more normalized in this area. Well, you get stronger when you're tested by the fire. Right. So yeah. in, Austin, in Austin, they have to stay strong if they're going to remain. That was a rude awakening, man, because I'm we moved from <laughs> from Oklahoma City. We used to live in Oklahoma City, uh, all of a sudden to Austin. So Oklahoma City changed a lot nowadays too. But back, I'm talking about back in the day, where in Oklahoma City was like it was assumed you go to church on Sunday, doesn't matter what denomination. Where in yeah. Austin, they looked at you weird, like why you you know you don't have to go to church right? you're in Austin. You know, that kind of <laughs> attitude. It's like a complete switch. Why man. would you do it's that? Like, yeah, it's like it's all right, man. You don't have to go to church. You know what? You go to church. You know, like there's a that's the only time there was no traffic. Yeah, it's like there's no traffic Sunday morning. You know, in Austin, whereas in Oklahoma City, it was a traffic rush. Yeah. Uh, so it's just different cultures. Yeah. Also, before uh, I forget, it is, uh, for Bishop Sheen Rosaries, it is ten percent off. And also, I I was a, I did a bad job last stream. I didn't really get to any questions or anything from the live chat. So, but I am keeping an eye more on the live chat and hopefully we'll answer some questions as you guys bring it to us or as we get to the topic and I will, you know, we'll, we'll get to some of the topics. If you guys uh, want anything specific, let us know. Um, but yeah, no, just the interest. It's so interesting, all the different cities. And it's also so awesome that uh, Louis, uh, Mark said Austin was uh this hippie communist uh, atheistic uh, city and Louis it's is like, yep, it is. Bad. It, I, I, I pick, I, so it's kind of a fun thing to pick on Austin. Like, like Jose was saying, yeah. uh, you know, but yeah. the I lived in Austin for uh, like a year and a half, actually out in Leander, which is like, but at least, suburb, but but at least yeah. we know what they do in Austin. unlike the panhandle. Yeah. No one knows what, <laughs> no one knows what goes on in the panhandle of Texas. Nobody and knows. I've been to the Panhandle. Yeah, I got to, uh, all the way to Dumas, uh, Texas, actually, yeah. and Dalhart and all that. So it's yeah, that's that's the no man's land essentially. You've been uh, to the Panhandle, Panhandle? man. I've never <laughs> even, I've never even met anybody who's visited the Panhandle before. Oh, yes. dude, I mean, I'm right here. Really? Yeah. Wow. 
Yeah, I've yeah. driven through the when we lived in Wyoming for a few years. I drove through the Panhandle all the time. Okay, that's that's horse country too, by the way. I guess one of the horse capitals of the world here all in right, wow. Oklahoma. Yeah, I mean, and the second biggest canyon in America. It's actually in that area. Oh yeah, Panhandle. Palo Duro. Palo Duro. Palo Duro. Yeah. After the Grand Canyon is the second biggest. I've been there too. So, I've almost visited. I think almost every single county in this state. Uh, there's a lot. There's more than a hundred. That's yeah. I, I travel a lot. I did sales for a while too. Okay. Uh, so I did medical sales and I had to go to hospitals across the state and that was my territory. And that's what I, <laughs> I will go and stop at a local Catholic church everywhere. I go Comanche, Stephen, but whatever. And uh, I will that, that time add in the prayer list, my Lyle deceased wife, I'm a widower. At that time, my wife was battling cancer. And that's how I got to know all these places, you know, in Texas and churches and, you know, chaplains and whatnot, because I took it as my mission. He's like, hey, I'm going to ask for intercessory for prayers as much as I can. And that's why I got see churches in remote places that i never would have visited before it was a great experience actually so yeah and wow. and and may i add a couple of things if connor you, you'll allow me I, I, um j- just re- j- just real quick uh before i forget about it also if you go to like kind of central texas where the german population oh, yeah. um settled yes. you have a lot you have a lot of painted churches like in fredericksburg and, and places like that what um, kind of churches like they call them painted churches. Okay. Right. So they they've got like you know, like it says a bunch of paintings on them. But um, <laughs> but uh, anyway, and what I was wanting to say that, and I don't mean to want to harp too much on the meshing of Hispanic and Anglo cultures, but one thing I've noticed as I've become Catholic five years ago is, in my experience, when you when you visit a a uh, most Protestant churches is very racially segregated in the sense this is where the white people goes, where the black people goes, where the Spanx go, so on and so forth. And since yeah. I've, since I've been Catholic, even, even in the Novus Ordo, but even more so in the traditional Latin mass, because there's no, you know, English mass, Spanish mass, mass and stuff like that. Yeah. Everybody's together. So when, when they came out last year and, you know, they're, they're always trying to say, you know, there's always this racial tensions. I don't feel that at all here in Houston, like, like, you know, because we interact with Hispanics and people of Mexican heritage and, and, and other parts of Central and South America, no problem whatsoever. Nobody, everybody gets along, but uh, getting back to the church part is, you know, they came out last year and said that the TLM was a, a haven for white supremacy, white supremacy. <laughs> and, and, and I was, I was in shock because not only have I gone to our parish here, I've been to Nebraska. I've been to one in uh, the one in Phoenix and LA and stuff like that, but especially more than any of those places, except for maybe LA, we have an overwhelming Hispanic population at, at, at our parish. And so when they were like, well, this is a haven for white supremacy. I'm like, you need to come to Regina Chaley mm-hmm. because, because yeah. The, the the meshing of cultures is right there under the common banner of Catholicism. And yeah. like last night we had a, um, a, a after after mass of the the assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary, we had a get together and there was several hundred people there. You know, and like I said, it's a meshing of cultures, but everybody's having a great time. Everybody's getting along. And even the land that we have um, there, it was donated by a lady, her her 
one of her ancestors actually bought from the Republic of Texas 450 acres of land. Well, they've sold it through the years to you know neighborhoods and stuff like that. But the last 40 acres Miss Betty had, she donated to the fraternity. So the fraternity wow. has wow. now built uh, uh, chapel hall. They've built like a, a gatehouse, which has offices and stuff like that. Classrooms, a kitchen, and they're, and they're eventually going to build like, uh, uh, a beautiful church. Right. But it's, it, it, it's just, uh, it, it's just amazing since I've been Catholic to see how much more Catholicism has brought together the cultures rather than divide them. Oh yeah. yeah. And I, I tell you, I went to a Baptist seminary here in Fort Worth and I can tell how the lines are divided or segregated. Whereas in Catholicism, it's like one big umbrella. I just came back from an awesome summer where I literally toured the whole, the South, you know, I went all the way to North Carolina, uh, Tennessee, Alabama. I love Alabama. Shout out to those, you know, people in Alabama who are watching my, one of my favorite places. I've never been there before. Well, I literally met a family outside of Nashville who's uh, the guys from Guatemala and the lady, she's from America, you know, so it's a Hispanic white family. They go to a Latin mass in, in Nashville, which is 15 minutes away from where they live. And they have a bunch of kids too. They're awesome. Well, in Dallas, we have Mater Dei, Mater Dei um, is very known uh, that Latin mass here in Dallas. Well, there's one in Fort Worth also, St. Benedict's. Um, that's a lesser known compared to Mater Dei. But in Mater Dei, uh, one day I met a uh, friend of mine, you know, he's a Catholic speaker in Dallas. He was visiting tour and giving a speech. So we went and had breakfast and on the way back, I had my girls with me and I decided to stop at Mater Day. I used to go there when I worked at the radio in Dallas, the radio for a long time. And I will stop there, get confession or just quick prayer and then keep going, you know, to work, whatever I caught at that time. Well, I was like, oh, I got to show my girls because, you know, people think Dallas Fort Worth are tie together i mean yeah technically the counties border each other but we really are almost an hour apart from distance you know that's that's it's not necessarily fairly close um so i decided oh they might as well take advantage of the situation and stop by mater Dei and and show my daughters well i walked in and there's this guy and i asked oh i'm sorry is there a mask going on and he's like yeah and then right out in, in spanish he asked me like do you speak Spanish? He says that in Spanish is like, yeah. Like, oh, dude, I watch your channel, Reconquista. I love it. It's like, oh, yeah. So next thing we're, we're like, we're talking. And it turns out there's like Carlos group. There's like a Hispanic, traditional Hispanic, you know, group that is from Mater Dei that gets together and they promote Catholic values and Hispanic values and all those things that meet at the Latin Mass, you know. So my point to, to uh, um, reemphasize uh, uh jason's point is like there is really it's nonsense we might have a lot of issues you know in the catholic church but that supremacy white supremacy is certainly not there especially not with latin mass and the rosary that's just a bunch of nonsense yeah. uh and that's factual you know that's just the way it is yeah. like i said we might have other issues but that's definitely not one of those <laughs> it's interesting um in my diocese there are two uh latin two latin mass communities or two latin mass churches that are diocesan and they are both either majority Hispanic or half Hispanic, uh, you know, half, um, you know, white uh, or sort of anything else. Um, but it's just very interesting to, to think about how, you know, I mean, it's not Texas, but, uh, you know, in, in other places, that's the same way is like. Uh, I think Latin Latin culture in and of itself. And, and uh, by the way, there, there is no such thing as the ubiquitous Latin culture, but they uh, amongst Latin America in general, even in the Caribbean Latin American countries, there is something that 
there is a there is a love for tradition that's woven into the fabric of those cultures and not just in religion but in architecture and heritage in language in food in music and it's not like they're all living in the past that's not what i mean but i mean even in they in modern styles they will incorporate there there's a there's a need to incorporate that which connects you to your past and so i think there's something about the traditional latin mass that speaks to the latin soul that that um that latin people are just like yeah i get it i get it you know um now that's there's exceptions obviously there might be some latino people who are just like yeah i don't get it but i think by and large culturally speaking there is something about latino culture that the that that connection with our past our traditions our heritage our history that meshes well and i think that that's um one of the things that i've i've really liked about texas and i've not seen this everywhere is the devotion to our lady of guadalupe mm-hmm. is not just a hispanic thing here yeah that is everybody i mean the mm-hmm. whitest the I, I mean if you got any whiter than me you'd be clear right but <laughs> Uh, I obviously <laughs> love Our Lady of Guadalupe. She's my favorite Marian devotion. And that's just, and it's because in a sense, we feel like that's ours. Like, I, I, and I know that that's, that happened it in is. Mexico, but it, you know, we were 150 years ago, we were Mexico. So uh, we feel very uh, protective of Our Lady of Guadalupe. Don't like when Protestants badmouth Our Lady of Guadalupe. Uh, and I look like I live in a majority Hispanic neighborhood here in Houston. And, uh, yeah, man, you talk, you talk trash about the Guadalupana. They got something for you. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, it's, I speaking of our lady Guadalupe. Cause, um, like I said, I've been privileged to travel across America, especially the parts of America that journalists won't journalists won't go, you know, usually journalism is just based on bureaus, whether it's Atlanta, New York, LA, or major hub cities, you know, but like I've been places like Arcadia, Kansas, which is like a meth, you know, County kind of like where poverty strikes really hard. Or when you see like people who live life outside of the ivory towers kind of situation. And you get to see like, when I say I love the Midwest, it's because I've been to the Midwest and I've seen it. Like I, my great grandfather actually went to Purdue university you know, so, it's like i love love america especially the midwest well it was surprising to me to see there's this church in southeast kansas in uh, called pittsburgh kansas just like pittsburgh pennsylvania it's a little town college town. Mm-hmm. and you go there and there's our lady of lords you know an honor of our later lords in france well you go inside and there's a little uh wall painted with uh, our lady guadalupe you know it's just a devotion now this is pittsburgh kansas texas we you know we get it right like Southeast Kansas, that's a whole different story. Uh, and there's still a devotion and they like Our Lady Guadalupe. And one of the messages that I, you know, a lot of us have been saying is Our Lady Guadalupe is not a Mexican phenomenon. You know, it's just like any Marian operation is for all Christendom. And even if you want to be regionalistic or, you know, nationalistic, technically it's not even Mexican because that happened during Spanish reign. And it's a mm-hmm. European technically, you know, <laughs> uh, phenomenon. Uh, uh, if we want to go technical about it, because remember, the, in Spain, unlike England, 
Spain have vice royalty. So in other words, if you were a citizen of New Spain, it was the equivalent of being a citizen of the Spanish you know, peninsula. So you have the same rights and duties and obligations. And in fact, a lot of the Indian royalty from uh, Native you know, Americas, the Indians, actually end up in Spain. A lot of them even taught in, you know, Spanish universities. Montezuma's descendant actually lives in Spain currently, you know, <laughs> to this day he exists. Uh, so it was a little different. Whereas in America, we know our history, you were a colony and you can only uh, do as they told you in that sense, like fiscally speaking, like your taxes. And obviously you only could contribute, but you were not represented. That was the English style. They were want to make sure you understood is like, you're not English. You know, whether you were in India, Canada, Nigeria, or America or Australia is you're not. Uh, and you stay on this side of the line. Well, for us in the Hispanic world was not, not the case. And Our Lady Guadalupe then, by definition, which I think is uh, not just wrong, but silly, when people try to uh, claim it for themselves, like, oh, this is our people's, like, you know, operation. Not really. You know, it's for everybody. And it's the, if I'm not mistaken, the second most visited Marian shrine in the world. Uh, wow. um, I think after Holy Land or something like that. It's just incredible. I mean, um, and we're seeing, when we see in the overall picture, you know, and, and I talked to a lot of Hispanic traditionalists across the country and across the continent. Uh, it's mind-boggling to them, people outside of America, to see how they think of America as exclusively a Protestant nation, because that's what the media portrays. And I tell them, hold on, there are about 70 million Catholics, give or take, you know, maybe more or less in, in the United States. So there are literally more Catholics in America that they're Spanish in Spain, and you won't think Spanish <laughs> is a Protestant. They're literally more Argent uh, Catholics in the U.S. than Argentinians in Argentina or Colombians in Colombia. I mean, really, it's the fourth largest Catholic body in the nation, in the world, I'm sorry, after uh, Brazil, the Philippines, Mexico, and America, you know, fourth place. So that's a big chunk of Catholics. Uh, I'm not talking about a small number. And when we see people wonder, how is Mary becoming so popular in the States? And I'm like, well, America was consecrated in the mid 1800s uh, to the Immaculate, by the way, hard. It's one of those, another Hispanic connection, by the mm -hmm. way, because Spain was one of the first nations to recognize back in the Council of Toledo, Our Lady as Immaculate. That's why they get granted the blue colors during the Immaculate Feast on December 8th. And not, not very many people across the world, many nations, uh, they can wear the blue vestments. Um, well, our, our nation, America, also the bishops, as a matter of fact, um, consecrated this country to our, our Immaculate as well. So there's another connection with Immaculata. And we, in my view, uh, it makes sense Mary is claiming what belongs to her, you know, this whole continent. She's the emperor of the continent and America's part of it. And she's just claiming uh, what belongs to, to her, you know, her title. Yeah, the, uh, the thing about the apparition of Our Lady of Guadalupe is that it really is where you get the title Empress of the Americas. And, mm -hmm. you know, I would say if you want, like you said about going regional, like if you wanted to go regional, you could say all of the Americas, North and South America, mm -hmm. but that's as regional as you could possibly get because, uh, because the patroness of literally two continents is yeah. uh, the Empress, the Empress of the Americas, yeah. Our Lady of Guadalupe. So it's just incredible. And, you know, it is interesting. I, I never really thought about it. Well, A, I never really experienced much of like sort of devotion to Our Lady of Guadalupe specifically uh, in the mid in um, the, um, sort of the suburbs of Chicago. 
but I'm really seeing it more visibly, you know, and it's not because there isn't, it's just that I wasn't privy to sort of see it, you know, correctly and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, so also we've talked about sort of the ordinary a little bit. We're talking about just the Latin mass as well. Is there a strong Eastern Catholic uh, yes. population? In Houston, well, I know in there Houston, is. Yeah. yeah. And we have, in fact, I'm very blessed to live literally five minutes from both the traditional Latin mass parish, the fraternity parish, and St. John Chrysostom, which is a Byzantine yeah. Ruthenian rite parish that also currently hosts the Melkite rite as well. Oh, uh, and Father and Father Elias is up in Dallas now, up where you are, uh, your area yeah. there, Luis. But yeah, yeah. no, well, you have the Melkites and you also have the uh, Ukrainians. No, no, no. But I'm saying there at St. John Chrysostom, oh, you have oh, another group there. I can't think of who it is, but yeah, you have those. You have the Ukrainians. You have the Syro. Syro Malabar. Uh, Malabar. Um, Syriac. The Syriac, right? Yeah. There's a Chaldean, right? Parish there's, yeah, I was going to say there's a Chaldean. Yeah. Yeah. So we have the, a Maronite blessed. church here. In, yeah. There's a Maronite church here in the FW, Byzantine yep. church too. St. Basil the Great, I think it's called in Irvine. Like it. It's not us here in the, I don't know about Houston, you know, but DFW. Houston is more like a proper metro. It's a huge city, but it's actually structured like a you know proper city metroplex with rings, if you want to call it that way. Sure. Dallas, Fort Worth is more like a cluster of cities just meshed together. So it's really not doesn't have that flow like Houston has. Uh, it's just a reality. Uh, so for us, it's not necessarily as easily in that sense. But yeah, there's a bunch of churches too here. Houston's uh, not, immigrant not population has exploded in recent decades, and Really, if I don't care what religion, especially from California, (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to get into that at some point. Uh, uh, I don't care what religion you want, we got it. And uh, I was, I was actually, we've got the Sikh temple is not too far away from where I live. Also, there is a huge Vietnamese Buddhist complex, and there is also a huge Vietnamese Catholic complex right here in the neighborhood as well. Complex. complex no, it's, it's they've got life-size stations of the cross right complex Wait, it, it's not a it's church a, it's a dominican monastery no, no, and school and oh, okay. church and yeah it's a I, but when i say a church you think of a building this is the church the monastery the cloister the school the dominican headquarter the, the vietnamese wow. dominican headquarters there it's a complex it is a compound basically um <laughs> And uh, there, uh, we have Shia and Sunni mosques and uh, Hindu temples. In fact, uh, uh, the Indian Pakistani uh, uh, population here is huge. Houston is home to the largest cricket grounds in North America. Actually, the largest cricket grounds in the Western Hemisphere uh, are, are here wow. in Houston. And really? if you, wow. And if you've ever watched cricket, um, you can explain it to me one day because I, I tuned in one day and I was like, I'm going to learn how to play cricket. I'm going to watch this until I figure it out. We watched one match. It took the whole day and I still have wow. no idea how cricket is played. I don't know what the rules are. <laughs> I tried to figure wow. it out. I can't figure it out. But anyway, very big amongst the Indo-Pak uh, community. But yeah, we, we, we've got it all. And I, I agree with Jason. I've never seen until I started going to Regina Chaley I've never seen a Catholic church where everybody worships together. Like, and that's the way it's supposed to be. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ. And when we, we, all the divisions that are in the church, those are all man-made. Those are not 
God made and they're not supposed to be like that. So every time I see a place where those divisions break down, um, I, I know that that's the work of the Holy Ghost for sure. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. So Jersey also asked if any of you have bumped into Trent Horn uh, in Texas on our podcast. On a podcast. Yes, exactly. That's what I was thinking. I was like, eh. But not in per- not in person not, yet. Not in person. No. Not me. No. Mm, not me. Um, I, the only Catholic speaker I met actually was Chris West, Christopher West, and actually was at an Anglican <laughs> conference here in uh, uh, Dallas Fort Worth because he was a guest speaker. That's another really side note phenomenon. There's the Anglican, the ACNAT, Anglican Church of North America. There's like a split from the Episcopal Church because they went, you know, too liberal and all that. Like the more uh, conservative side. Oh yeah, yeah, and and. Yeah they have really amicable relationship with the Catholic church here in North Texas. I mean, they both cultures, they get along really well to the point that the Anglicans invite Catholic speakers and they, you know, adopt a lot of, they have a very sacramental view of life too, which I was shocked to find out outside of DFW when I went different places and met uh, with Episcopalians. I was like, Oh, okay. So this is kind of like a local phenomenon because you go here and meet a lot of the Anglicans and they have, they believe in seven sacraments, whether that whole debate, you know, valid or not, that's a whole different story, but like they understand, they pray the rosary, literally. I mean, they have a huge Marian devotion. We're talking about Anglicans, you know, here. Um, they're very Orthodox. They pray the rosary. They believe in sacraments and all that. They just, you know, it's, it's weird because I thought, oh, that's just normal. Right. And no, <laughs> to my surprise, it was not normal. You know? And I'm, so we're very blessed in Texas in that regard. Um, and speaking of the ordinary, they literally open a church about less than two blocks away from my house. And <laughs> so <laughs> that's, awesome. uh, that's one of those things like everything meshes together. Um, the Franciscans really are heavy here. Oh man, we're, we're very lucky. Very lucky. Even with this whole nonsense about, you know, lockdowns and whatnot. Um, a lot of the churches here in Texas, not all of them, but a lot of churches still remain open or priests who are still ministering sacraments. Um, you know, one of my priests, who I shall not name, one of the priests that I know, because I know many, um, at that time, you know, my wife was still alive and she was sometimes at the hospital. All that The priest would go to the hospital, uh, defy orders anyway, and give her a Holy Communion, you know, at that time at the hospital. God. So it's like, better to we're, we're, God than men. Beautiful. Yeah. Oh, man, that's when you realize you're lucky because I will hear friends, even from Mexico, horror stories, how the sacraments were denied to them. And I'm like, no, we don't have that issue here. You know, talking about the ordinariate and that I've actually never been to the ordinariate until here. I've been maybe three times here recently. The first time I went was when they were bringing St. Bernadette's relics. They brought a relic to the ordinariate and me and my family, we went we went there and saw that. But one thing that, that, that was interesting about Bishop Lopes and the ordinariate here is during all this COVID shutdowns and stuff like that is Bishop Lopes was also one of the first bishops to say, okay, we need to get people back to the sacraments. Like the ordinariate as far uh, as uh, parishes being reopened, I believe they were one of the first in Houston where, you know, Bishop Lopes and them are like, dude, we need to get people back to mass. Yeah. We need to get them back to the sacraments. So, yeah. so from what I now, I, from what I know, and it's not a lot, but it seems like Bishop Lopes is trying to do a good job with his, with oh, his, yeah. uh, you know, with his flock that he's been given. Yeah, but that's a- it. I really wish I had an ordinary church nearby. Just like it, it would be perfect for my dad who. uh you know, he, yeah. he would probably really uh, enjoy or just, you know, love the experience of an ordinary mass. Yeah. 
but unfortunately there's not a lot there's not a lot of anglicans in illinois i don't think and there are so there aren't a lot of opportunities for that conversion also um haley's in the chat and it's really excited to see you louis on uh hey haley uh, uh it's uh we're very lucky with our, we have actually two one in arlington which is a suburb of fort worth too saint uh mary as well uh ordinary church and then saying uh thomas beckett here plus land mass and just even we have a franciscan uh, third order regular franciscan church saint andrew you know which is technically my parish and i love it one of the things i don't know if y'all familiar with this with franciscans are known for being the guardians or the custodians of the eucharist that's kind of like their thing you know how dominicans are very uh good at like you know scholarly things for the jesuits or whatever very structure well the franciscans are known for obviously poverty but also the eucharist in spain the franciscans are the ones who uh, guard the eucharist during the spanish processions during holy week and all that that's kind of their thing um well the uh, was very blessed because you know saint andrew has perpetual adoration you know that that's that's a gift you know so again i got spoiled in texas because when i will travel outside of texas and i expected to have the same standard we have here and it's like no for logistical reasons or culture whatever you want to add you know because not i was like oh wow that was a rude awakening for me like saying you're truly blessed that even among Protestants, you guys have Catholic worldview, so you don't have to struggle. Then you know it's truly a gift from God. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. That's, it, I mean, just sounds really uh, amazing. I uh, hopefully I'll be in Texas uh, for the Blessed uh, Carl Symposium, so hopefully I'll I'll get a small taste of that, um, God willing. Uh, but yeah, so it, it's just really interesting, kind of people always talk about diversity, I feel like, and just kind of the diversity within the Catholic Church. And I mean, the diversity that is okayed by the Catholic Church. I mean, there, there's, uh, there can be bad diversity in the sense of poorly done liturgies or, you know, uh, liturgical dance and stuff like that. But like, uh, just sort of all the, all the different rites sort of coexisting. And um, does the ordinariate count as an its own right or it's yeah. a, it is a Latin, yeah. it is a, it is part of the Latin church. But the uh, Western so it, church, it is, but is it the Latin as well? Cause it is, it's not the Roman, it's not the Roman, but they are part of the Latin church as well. The way, the way the priest at, at say our lady of Walsingham explained it to me is that they are part of the Latin church and within the Latin church is the Roman, right? The, uh, and Ambrosian. then the, I think like, the Ambrosian may be a subdivision of the Roman, right? No, am I wrong about that? I don't, I don't know. I'm Ambrosian just is is not Ambros part of the Roman rite. Okay, so yeah, you're right Rome. then. Yeah, the the Roman rite, the Ambrosian rite, and the uh, the ordinary is mm -hmm. in there too. And, and I, there's probably there's probably others too. I mean, I'm, I will admit I'm not an expert on that, but because um, there was the, there was the Serum rite that existed in England prior to uh, the Protestant revolt, and I. I would assume that it would fall into a similar category. Well, Does the use of serum still still exist? Is that I thought that was one of the ones that was gotten rid of by corporate. It was. I think it was by you talking about Pope Pius V. Yeah, I think I, I it was. So, but. I think it was gotten rid of actually only because of the revolt because it was oh, okay. offered back in the 1800s. Oh, okay. I believe. Yeah, um, gotcha. it, but the, so did there was this divide between the uh, English. Uh, hierarchy between sort of the serum right uh, people, uh, pro serum right people, and the 
uh, pro-Roman right people. And I think John Henry Newman was on the Sarum right side, I think, oh, okay. but uh, I could be wrong. Interesting. Yeah, so you... Sorry. I was going to say with uh, Ornaire, I learned something that I, um, you know, I didn't know before, which was me as a Roman Catholic born and Baptist in the Roman Rite, you know, uh, cradle Catholic. Uh, I can assist and attend to an uh, ordinary church and partake in the sacraments and all that. But like I cannot be a member of the diocese, you know, because I have no Anglican stock. You know, I wasn't baptized in an Anglican church or I didn't come from an Anglican church or, you know, Episcopal uh -huh. church. Uh, and that's per Pope Benedict, the 16th, you know, the stipulations back in the day. But um, because, for example, my daughters, you know, back in the day, especially the old ones, they were baptized in the Anglican church. <laughs> essentially it's like it's all like a reverse anchor baby situation <laughs> so they can go there and then because of family unit they i can they can petition whatever you call i forgot the term you know and i can become part of the ordinary as a member of the diocese you know i'll be under the diocese jurisdiction i can be a member and go, go to mass and take communion and all that but like uh confirmation all these other things you know i will not be able to partake it so it's like hmm i didn't know that <laughs> you know it's like yeah. uh, so this is what it feels like i guess so well they know, like, well well they have in the bulletin that uh the ordinary area if they have interested in joining you know contact is here it's, so i i didn't know there you can join the, there was you can join the parish but like the diocese is a whole different because oh, technically okay. we're members of the diocese i'm a member of the diocese of fort worth right like that's you. that's different bishop olsen this is my bishop but i cannot switch bishops per se even because uh, unless you. i'm you know brought into through uh my daughters <laughs> by your, or, yeah by your yeah. daughter yeah um that's hey Connor, I, I looked up at the Sarum rite and it said it was used uh, from the late, according to Wikipedia, late 11th century to the English Reformation. Yeah, wait, 11th so. century, so 1200. So, wait, that so that would fit under, so that wouldn't get gotten rid of by quo premium. No, it wouldn't. No, because it would be older than 200 years old. Yeah, so, that's yeah. the same time around the Dominican. The Dominican rite was also. Oh, that's another right. Dominican right is its own right. It's not part of the Roman right, even though there's not that much difference. We have that here in Houston as well at Holy Rosary. And uh, is it downtown, Mark? Holy Rosary? Yeah, Holy Rosary is downtown in. Uh, so the, the the Dominicans here in Houston are largely a Vietnamese centered. They they largely cater to the Vietnamese community, um, and the area where little holy rosary is is a dominican parish and they're in little saigon which is an area uh, on the uh, southern end of downtown houston great area fantastic uh, cultural center in houston by the way if you ever do come to houston we one of the best kept secrets in houston is our korea town i'm a big fan of korean barbecue oh, yeah. korean fried chicken <laughs> now the koreans are mostly protestants but however we do have saint andrew kim uh, in Koreatown, which is the Korean Catholic Church, and um, what very part cool of town is the Korean. I, I, see, I he see lived here his whole life. Didn't knew no. <laughs> I've met native Houstonians who were like, "We have a Koreatown." Uh, Koreatown <laughs> is in Spring Branch. It's in Spring Branch. Oh, that's uh, not far from. from it's me not at far all. at all. In fact, me and you ought to go get some Korean barbecue. Um, let's do it. Let's do it. So yeah, but we've we've got great little cool little ethnic uh, and cultural centers here in Houston, but they're not quite as uh, uh, segregated as you might find in a place like Chicago or something like That's that. That's a great point. The only people who live in yes. the Polish neighborhood are Polish people are the only, you know, everybody. Yes. So everybody. So like I, I live in a predominantly, and I mean, predominantly uh, Mexican uh, neighborhood. 
I, I, both Mexican Americans and Mexican nationals. Um, yeah. but, but like they don't, I mean, nobody gives me a hard time that I live here. I'm part of the neighborhood and, and, you know, it's just, we also have a lot of Vietnamese people who live in this neighborhood too. So it's, yeah, it's just, you know, his cool. Hispanics show affection with food. That's how we, you know, you know, communicate that we like you, you're in, uh, and Jose, my, kind of a... my wife is Cuban. Trust me. I know. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know, the, Jose, this, this the... doesn't, this doesn't just happen. Okay. This takes work <laughs> yes. right here. Yeah, so I'm a, I'm still a target for the Hispanic community because I'm a, you know still kind of trying to gain weight and, and <laughs> they, they still since I was a little kid they're like this kid is sickly like the irony is like I'm super healthy I mean blessed but anyway it's like you know he's so skinny that we gotta find him in up well in in the Hispanic community that's how it works and I've noticed as a as an immigrant because I'm an immigrant and I've been blessed half of my life essentially almost half of my life has been here in the states the other half in Mexico so I'm bicultural not really bilingual like I understand both cultures I've been married to Anglos Protestants so I know exactly what it's like uh from both sides of the aisle and I've noticed that the south especially Texas that's not that's a given but the south culturally speaking actually aligns a lot with the Hispanic culture oddly enough or not no it's not a surprise to me uh whereas I noticed like you know um uh, just Mark was pointing out we don't really see those lines as a strong like in the north for example like those delineated like clear neighborhoods uh, here's just everybody meshes eventually at some point and you see literally just white guys at the taco stands and eating and dancing mexican music and all that uh without any problem I mean, weddings you see the white guys singing mexican songs uh we make jokes out of it politically incorrect jokes in jokes and it's not a big deal whereas uh, when i visited the north or when i visited the north you know i've been you know new york and all that uh, Greenpoint, when I went there a few years back, is a Polish neighborhood in New York City. And it was exclusively, that was very stark to me, a contrast. Like, oh, wow, there's like literally just Polish people here, which is beautiful. I love Poland and the culture and all that. They're great Catholics, but it's just very uh, marked lines where here in the South, it just all blends together. It's not necessarily very segregated. Uh, and as a foreigner, as somebody who has no bone in this fight with this whole civil war thing and all that, like I can clearly see, well, really, this is... Uh, a place that actually has no segregation and gets along better. Are there jerks somewhere in the south? Of course, they're jerks anywhere. They're jerks in Mexico <laughs> and, and 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 mean people in Spain and in England and you name it. Um, so that's just a given. But overall, culturally speaking, uh, it's been amazing. I love the South. I love Texas, but I love especially the South as well. Uh, and I love the Midwest after the South because that's where I more, more used to be traveling. But I noticed that there's less resistance. And culturally speaking, the Southerners in America, they tend to be very family oriented, even if they're Protestant. You know, they're family oriented. They party a lot. You know, some of them literally go hungover to church the next day. But I mean, it's still kind of like very similar concepts here. Uh, was family, food, tradition, uh, and just hospitality. Uh, and that's what we find here in Texas very strongly. I am very hopeful for the future of our nation, especially with Catholicism. I think Texas is the prime example of what it looks like. And I could be wrong, obviously, but I think the ordinary is where it's at. You know, that's where we're really uh, potentially, you know, that's a lot of potential for our country to be united, you know, under one banner. Yeah, you know, I've, I've, go ahead, Connor, sorry. Have you guys ever uh, heard of Charles Coulomb's Star Spangled Crown? Oh, oh man. It's, um, I read The Puritan's Empire. It's my, one of my favorite books. You know, I love Charles Coulomb. 
But have you read uh, Star Spangled Crown? That one haven't read yet. Uh, uh, you'll, that's you'll on love, my list. You'll love the ordinariate part uh, in the book. Uh, so I don't want to spoil that for you. You'll, uh, awesome. You'll I'm a big that. fan of it. And, and, and Vincent Franchini, too. You know, everything actually, believe it or not, started with Vincent Franchini, which I, you know, I, I like him a lot because uh, I buy books from Tumblr House, uh, house whenever I have a chance. Yeah, uh, Tumblr House. I do, uh, you know, I contribute with Meaning of Catholic with Timothy Flanders and uh, uh, Kennedy Hall and everybody over there and, and 1 Peter 5 and all that. It all started because Timothy asked, hey, is there any Hispanic guys, you know, that y'all know that can talk about Spain? And Vincent Franchini was the one who tagged me on this conversation and, you know, introduced me to <laughs> Timothy Flanders. The rest is history. Wow. Um, that's how everything, yeah. Yeah. So I'm definitely, I owe a lot to those guys uh, and I, I definitely have a lot of love for them. Yeah, I just, yeah. I just it wanted to Mark, yeah. Or sorry, Jason. No, I'm no, I'm looking I, at your I'm looking <laughs> at your name and I'm like <laughs> I just wanted to add something. I mean, it really doesn't necessarily go with the show topic, but but uh <laughs> okay. what you know, I, I've traveled through work the most 50 states, and I, I agree with Luis and Mark that there there's a lot more blending in the South. And to be honest, the South is actually a lot more tolerant and opening in my experience oh, different yeah. cultures a different part especially when you get in ohio pennsylvania places like that they're they're pretty bad about their one to the, the segregate but the one thing i wanted to mention is uh this guy I, I work with he's from south texas and the time i found out that he was bilingual because you mentioned singing wedding songs in spanish we were yeah. actually we were actually in kazakhstan eating at a georgian restaurant this guy comes up <laughs> Playing a guitar. Yeah, it's an odd story. He's playing a guitar at the <laughs> restaurant. And he goes, somebody asked him, one of uh, uh, the uh, one of the coworkers, he's he's actually from Mexico, right? And he asked him, he goes, you know, Cielito uh, Lindo? And the guy's like, yeah. <laughs> and he starts playing it. And the next thing I look over, and this guy, whiter than Mark, is over there just no. singing the song. I mean, louder than anybody in that <laughs> restaurant. And I was like, he's bilingual. There's so people now, whiter than me. Yeah, that. that's what I was thinking. Whiter than Mark, <laughs> and it was a bit of ghost or something. It was because <laughs> it was because of that that I found out now. Whenever I whenever I need uh, one of our our reps from Mexico need, that need a Spanish speaker with them, I'm like, oh, I could send him because I heard him sing the song. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I'm I'm conversationally functional. Um, it used to be my, my, my Spanish used to be a lot better. The problem is I married my wife. Now she's Cuban. Now their Spanish is very different than um, Mexican Spanish. They have not only just not only just a different accent, but they have different a whole different vocabulary, speed. a different <laughs> syntax. It's a different speed. And they they drop syllables. I, yeah. my, my guess is it would be a lot like um, somebody who uh, coming from Mexico, listening to a person from Texas speak English and then a person from Boston speak English. Yeah. Like, or even like, Australia, like, you know, it's like right. Yeah. Or Australia or something like that. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so the Spanish that I've learned from her, it, like, I can't speak that kind of, I don't know how to speak her Spanish. I try, but, it's um, so... but like, I, like I said, we grew up uh, for the most part, you kind of had to be a little bit functional in, in at least it, at least to get around. Now, I remember when I was learning Spanish, I was in a class with some, uh, some guys who were from New Zealand 
they had a really hard time because they'd never, they'd never heard a native speaker before. They've never heard a native speaker of this language. So they had a very, very difficult time. And for me, it was actually pretty easy to pick up because I've heard it all my life. Okay. Okay. Story time. Sorry. One more story about the, the, the language deal. I was, I was sitting at a restaurant bar in Australia and uh, what and my coworkers asked uh, this lady, the bartender said, can I have a shot of tequila? She goes, uh, Oh man, I can't drink tequila. Last time I did that, it just killed me. He goes, uh, well, which one did you have? She goes, um, um, Josie Swervo. Oh no. And we just, we just died laughing. And she was like, Ouch. she's like, <laughs> she's, she's like, what's so funny. Mercy. We're like, we're like, it's Jose Cuervo, not Josie. Two things, two things. It is Jose Cuervo and B that's not good tequila. Exactly. That. That's disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Let me tell you like, something. You need to come it, when you come down to texas okay go to a liquor store spend some money man and take and taste <laughs> a good tequila yeah. change your life man change your this life. is speaking of liquor very quickly actually spirits <laughs> texas is a great reflection of that mesh because we have great tequila but we also have great whiskey and bourbon yeah. you know like i know technically bourbon has the denomination of origin all that kind of stuff like it. but my point is there's a great distillers in texas a great culture and both Mexicans were Spanish-speaking people. Uh, and Anglos both like and embrace each other. Like, it's very common at Mexicans' weddings to have a scotch and whiskey and all that. Um, I just, when I saw the Irish flag you have back there in, in, in the background, there's a Scottish-Irish festival here in, um, it's uh, Decatur, Texas, North Texas. It's the Highlands, North the Highlands Festival, right? Yeah, and I love going there. I mean, I go I try to go every year and all that. You even see Hispanics there. Like, you know, it's just it's just normal mesh, you know, and then kids playing and dancing and all that. Uh, there's a Basque migrant community that settled long ago, you know, uh, more than a century ago in Texas, in the area of San Antonio, Central Texas. Basque are like the northern part of Spain. You know, uh, um, they're kind of like the West Virginia, like the, you know, kind of wild ones from Spain. Yeah. Well. You know, they settled there in in, uh, in Texas to a very big Basque community. Actually, that's part of my heritage, Basque, uh, which makes sense knowing my aunts now. But in, I see all those factors going on. And it's like, okay, this is a really nice uh, mesh of cultures. This is a really good place. The only thing that I don't like about Texas is the heat. Other than that, it's pretty oh, good. It's been it's bad this summer, ain't it? First yeah. of all, to the Basque, shout out to Ignatius of Loyola. Um, yeah. the, 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 the founder of the Jesuits was Basque, yeah. um, actually going to your denomination of origin for bourbon actually just has to be the continental United States, anywhere in the continental United yeah. States, you can make bourbon. There has to be 51% corn mash. Corn. And yeah. I think it has to age for what, six, at least six months in, in brand yeah. new charred oak barrels. And that's oak barrels. Yeah. That's yeah. To be charred. Yeah. But it's embrace. I, I mean, the, you see Hispanics say like, yeah, whiskey and all that. Like, it's just normal for us. It's not necessarily like, oh, that's a gringo thing. Not at all. That's just. No, you, you know. go to a wedding, you're going to drink. You go to a Mexican wedding, you're going to drink Bucanas. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Bucanas, buca well, it, it's called Buchanan's, but if you hang out with Bucanas and uh, yeah, you go to a Mexican wedding and you think you're going to drink tequila. No, nah, man, every table is going to have their own bottle yeah. of Bocanas. And so, yeah. Oh, they're lit, man. I highly recommend those Mexican weddings. There's lots of food and all that, but yeah. Oh, that's always, <laughs> there's right always mass. between the, between the weddings, the quinces, the, the, the baptisms, there's always something going on, man. It's, it's great. 
It's aligned with the Catholic calendar, essentially. That's what it is to, you know, the remnants of it. And, and you feast, essentially. But the quinceañeras, that's another topic, which I know we're yeah, running out of my, time. I was going to say, my, yeah. my, my oldest daughter was in, uh, asked to be part of one of her French quinceañeras, you know, and all that. So it's, yeah, I mean, it's just. Which is no... a party for teenagers that adults get hammered at. <laughs> Originally, it means the coming of age, right? It's like yeah. a right. 16, but it's a coming of age type of right, you know, and uh, it's a big deal. I mean, it sometimes can get as expensive as a wedding. Oh, know? yeah. So no, it's it's, it's a big deal. Tens it's a of big thousands deal. of dollars. Yeah. Okay. I, I, love, I love this, wedding. guys. I, I I do. I really do. I love this. Uh, I love uh, the thing about the thing I love about these streams is just how laid back it is uh, and just how we get to run off on different topics. But I do want to briefly discuss um, the hierarchy in Texas and just get your guys' opinions. I recently interviewed uh, uh, Bishop Joseph Strickland, and uh, so that, and he's, in my opinion, really great. And I'd like to hear about some other bishops and some, you know, your guys' experience in that area, other than the ordinary, because you guys have mentioned him <laughs> like every single. When I was when I was coming up, when I was when I was growing up, we grew up under um, Bishop. Uh, oh gosh, now I can't even Schultz? remember his name. No, it no, it, was, it starts with an F. Ferdinand, Ferdinand, Ferdinand. No, now I can't remember his name. He was not <laughs> that. He was not. He was the Archbishop in Houston before uh, Cardinal Dinardo. Um, anyway, he was not so great. Cardinal Dinardo is actually pretty. I I, I find Cardinal Dinardo to be a a, a good defender of of Orthodox Catholicism, a friend to the traditional Latin mass community for the most part. When Traditionis Custodis came out, he did restrict some uh, diocesan Latin masses, but not all of them. Um, and he didn't touch our little fraternity parish over there. He just, he left us, let us be. Um, but for the most part, I, I have not had um, too many issues with the hierarchy here. I will say Bishop Strickland probably is my favorite uh yeah. bishop in the state but you know i yeah it it, it was bishop uh fiorenzo 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 yeah. was mm. so so I, i'm in the same boat as mark with our bishop uh cardinal donardo i i mean overall i think he's done a good job i mean do i wish he hit he would do certain things a different way well of course i mean I'm, that's that's just natural right um i i i did disagree with some of the shutdowns that he did to the Latin mass for obvious reasons that these dice, uh, uh, and masses. But, um, I think, I think he is also very, um, intelligent in the sense that he's, he doesn't, you know, he's a, a friend in a sense to the traditionalists because he doesn't want to get rid of it. Cause if he wanted to, he could have just shut us down very quickly or really yeah. regulated the whole diocese to just Regina Chaley. Right if he wanted to. Um, but I, but I think he's trying to play the game that best benefits us in his diocese, you know, uh, just do enough to keep the dogs at bay type deal. Right. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, that, that's kind of how I feel about uh, Cardinal Donardo. Um, of course, like you said, Bishop Strickland, no, I mean, I think every, everybody likes him. That's orth orthodox. <laughs> um, and I think Bishop Olsen, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, I think he's a 
pretty good bishop unless I'm thinking of somebody else. But you can, you, I mean, you can speak to that, uh, Louise. Um, yeah, he's our bishop, and he's like not necessarily the favorite among some conservative Catholics. I have no qualms with him at all. You know, it's just all right. And he actually came, and and we gotta say this and clarify it. You know, credit to whom credit is due. Bishop Bolson, remember when Go- Bishop Cordlon? Uh, denied Pelosi communion, you know, and stands for the whole pro-life thing. Bishop Olson was one of the first ones who actually backed up, you know, Archbishop Cordelon in that sense. So I know a lot of the uh, trads or so-called trads, you know, don't sometimes have something to say about the bishop, but that's that's something that has to be recognized. And he hasn't shut down, obviously, the, the Latin mass. He has no issues. Uh, it actually has grown. He's not perfect. Like, nobody's perfect. I know he's been targeted by different organizations, but... Anywhere, and y'all experience probably similar things, just diocese in and of itself, you know, has nothing to do with a bishop in a, in, to a certain extent. There's just bureaucratic apparatus, and that's just going to come with a turf. And it's yes. hard to deal with diocese. Diocese of Fort Worth is difficult to deal with, at least in my experience. Uh, it's just the nature of the beast. That's where it is, essentially. And there's some, um, and there's some Catholics out there for whom no one's good enough and nobody doesn't <laughs> yeah. good yeah, enough and true. things like that. And I think... You know, yeah. God forbid, I can't even imagine what my what I would do if I were a bishop, man. I, oh, I can't. my good. No, no. Yeah. And, it's a, and, and you talk and you talk about the politics. And I was talking about Cardinal DiNardo, you know, his his intelligence in this. I, I also think that he realizes that if he were to just completely go the opposite of what the Vatican was was wanting them to do, he's not too far from retirement age. Yeah. They could, you know, accept his mandatory retirement, let him move on and then put somebody in there yes. that that's good. So, uh, again, I, cards, that, yeah, yeah, he's playing his cards. Well, why I would like to see things a certain way. I also think he's very intelligent in the way that he is handling everything. Is it perfect? Uh, no. I mean, who who, who is yeah. going to handle it perfectly? But 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 I'm, I'm overall, I'm happy with Cardinal DiNardo in our diocese. Is he a quiet one? Just it seems to me from, you know, I haven't heard much about him. Is he very quiet? I don't think you hear too much from him from what I've seen. He 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 is he is vocal amongst his brother cardinals, but uh, to 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 us he is, you know, he's a he's a bishop. He's a, he's a good bishop and he's fine in a fatherly way. Uh, but he he keeps his own counsel for the most part, mm-hmm. but um, when the, when the McCarrick scandal broke, he was the, he happened to be the president of the U S conference of Catholic bishops at that time. And so they assembled to come up with some new protocols, new, you know, that that's what they do. Every time they, every no. time they get caught red handed, they, <laughs> they come up, they come up with some new reporting procedures and then, well, we fixed the problem. Yeah. We're all done here. Yeah. But anyway, bureaucratic. Yeah, yeah. He, he he is noted to have expressed some very. Um, he was very vocal about his outrage at that meeting, um, more so than, you know, the the complacency of the others who were just saying, "Well, let's." That. Yeah. No. Apparently, he apparently he let him have it, and. I, yeah. I like that. Now I will say this. I, I, I was not, I did not give Fiorenza a rave review earlier, but I will say there is one area where I do commend Bishop Fiorenza. And that is in the seventies and eighties and nineties, while dioceses like Boston were just, just infested 
with pederasts and and covering up of sex abusers and it was the whole culture in that diocese that's just the way it is fiorenza tolerated none of that there there were instances of priests who uh acted badly and they were dealt with correctly by bishop fiorenza and so they did not that that is not a a a wound that was allowed to fester under his uh under his guidance so i give respect where respect is due right and so that was one thing very grateful that he did not allow the diocese of galveston houston which was just a diocese at that time not an archdiocese during his reign but uh very glad that he did not allow us to become like so many dioceses did um during that that time so yeah yeah i've been very lucky to meet uh actually two priests in my lifetime that became bishops one of them was the priest the parish that, that i grew up in monterey mexico uh, which is, by the way, where uh, Archbishop Gomez right now, you know, from L.A. Uh, he he, he from, confirmed me, by the way. Oh, really? Wow. He's from yes. Monterey, where I'm from. Yeah, Jose, Gomez. The Jose Gomez. Jose um, Gomez. Well, um, our priest, well, when I was growing up in Our Lady of the Rosary, uh, he became a bishop for the border town of Piedras Negras, which is a border town with Eagle Pass, Texas. Now he's a Monsignor Alonso Garza. He actually consecrated Reconquista Network during a live interview to St. Joseph because, you know, wow. I'm a big fan of St. Joseph. Joseph be my first name, by the way. That's why you see Jose. Uh, my middle name is Luis. Like any Mexican kid is named Jose. Uh, you know, it's just the way it is. But I go by my middle name, Luis. But anyway, so he's one from a priest to a bishop. And then uh, in Austin, of all places, I met Father Bill Wack. He became the bishop over there in Tallahassee, Florida. Now, not too long, a few years back. So uh, really good guy, really orthodox too. He kind of keeps to themselves as well, that kind of guy. But a uh, young guy, you know, just orthodox and whatnot. And uh, it's just, just my, my, it's funny how I encounter bishops without even knowing. Even our, what is it, Lori, 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 like the one who I just came second, up with. Um, you know, an opinion right now lately on, on some issue of the church uh, with communion and all that. Anyway, uh, from Baltimore, I met him in D.C. once, you know, he gave me a blessing, too. So it's, it's just funny how life in divine providence put me in those places. And I haven't had the pleasure of meeting Bishop Olson. I hope I can meet him one day. Uh, but so far, it, it's, you know, it's good. It's all right. Yeah. OK. That's Are you guys it. familiar with uh, Bishop John McCarthy, who used to be the bishop in um, Austin, Texas? During I think of the eighties. No, no, absolutely. So, so he was he was a he was a priest here in the diocese of Galveston, Houston. He was the, the bishop of of Austin for a while. He was a pretty liberal bishop, and so I won't get into that. But anyway, one day I'm perusing around a used bookstore, as of course is my want, and I found his breviary from when he was a priest, and it's oh, wow. got, and it's the nineteen it's the nineteen uh, it's the uh, the traditional breviary, but yeah. John McCarthy, Diocese of Galveston, Houston's right there in the thing. So yeah, that's that's kind of an interesting thing, but it's his old Latin breviary. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, so uh, it so I think we did a really good job of, of looking at the region of Texas. I I love the, the rants of, uh, which are perfect about culture. You know, I, I I sit back and I I don't understand some of it because I, I being not from Texas, um, but it's really interesting to see sort of that unity as well as the diversity of the church just coming together in Texas. And what do you guys think, or what's your hopes for the future of the church in Texas? Growth. (laughs) (laughs) 
I I expect and my hope is just like in mission growth, but especially deep devotion. Texas has become uh, a lot of these efforts led by people at modern day uh, and other churches too. Uh, we're becoming to get known for crusades like rosary crusades and pro-life battles, like actually going to processions, uh, which, you know, they're, they're thankfully back in and culturally speaking. And so they're always being part of the church. Uh, so I expect to see deeper devotions, especially a lot of Marian devotions. And, and I'm a huge, obviously, uh, fan of Our Lady, a huge advocate for it, even though I'm consecrated to St. Joseph and he's my favorite saint and all that. I recognize that Our Lady's role and, you know, we get through Christ through Mary and I can see Our Lady working in this part of the country. We need her here. This is Texas is kind of like is not to brag or anything but it's really become the resistance, culturally speaking, against all this cancel culture, this like woke agenda, this globalist type of elites, whatever you want to call it. Um, I know there are other states, Alabama, Arkansas, uh, Tennessee, and all that, but they don't have the numbers. Numbers are power at the end of the day. Texas does. Florida comes you know, close second, but it's still Texas, the epicenter of freedom in the Western Hemisphere, and Catholics play a key role on this and if we want to keep that battle alive and well we're going to need our lady more than ever you know that's just the way it is so i expect to see a deeper devotion to our lady and growth uh, as well mark uh well i just going just going right along with what uh, luis was talking about and um i i am constantly amazed at the growth of the church even just in my lifetime here in the houston area and that's something that that's a trend that I see continuing. Um, the influx of, of migrants has a positive side to it. Now, obviously, I do believe that our, 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 our laws and everything need to be enforced. And so we could, that's a whole different yeah. conversation. However, yeah. um, the. That's a whole other Texas. That's a whole, uh, that's a whole yeah. other conversation. It's that's out more, of control. That's for sure. It's yeah. more political than anything else. But I, I will mm-hmm. say, though, that, um, you know, the the roots that Texas has with the Catholic church. In fact, very recently I was on a trip to San Antonio and if you go to San Antonio, you can still visit all those old missions that, uh, that, that were established in the, in the late, uh, in the late 17th century or early 17th century. But I was walking along the river walk and the river runs right through San Antonio, lovely little river walk, all kinds of shops and restaurants, things like that. And I ran across this plaque that said on this spot in 1628, or 1528, I don't remember exactly what, 1528, the very first mass in the mission of San Antonio de Bejar was said by a Franciscan. And I just thought, wow, you know, that's an incredible uh, thing to be standing on that spot. And I think that, I think there's tremendous growth potential there. I think, you know, I, I, my grandmother once told me that I cannot convert people to the Catholic church. Only the, only the Holy spirit can do that the best thing you can do is stay out of his way. So let's be good stewards of, of let's be good examples of faith. Let's stand for the teaching that, that Christ gave to his church. Let's not water it down with what we believe is a more palatable version of that, because that you're standing in God's way. When you do that, you think you're slick, you're not slick. Okay. (laughs) So, um, you know, I, I, I had a, a, a Jewish friend of mine ask me once, do you think that Jesus Christ is the sole means of salvation? And it could have been a very, 
I thought, well, this is going to be an awkward conversation and maybe there's a way I can finesse this where I can, I can say it, but not say it, you know, and I, man, don't do that. You have no right. You have no right to do that. And I said, yes, I do believe that. And you know, she said to me, she goes, thank you for being honest with me. Why, why do Christians try to lie to me? Like that, like they think I'm stupid and they don't, they think I don't know that I said, because they're, because they don't want it to be awkward. And she goes, well, that's ridiculous. I said, yes, it is. And then she wished me a happy Easter. That, so I think if we keep doing yeah. that, if we, if we uh, stick to, if we, if we, as St. Paul admonishes us, hold fast to the traditions that were handed down to us, then, um, then we're going to be in good shape. Yeah. Uh, thank so, you all. Wait, so what? Well, I, I just wanted to add one thing. I mean, they both, I'm, I'm not going to add much to what either one of them have said, but, you know, I, as, as they were talking, I was thinking about, you uh, a few months ago with the troops of St. George, we had a camping trip at Goliad and they reenacted the battle of Goliad and all that. And then we had mass outdoors there at Goliad and, and the priest there, his homily was, he talked about a lot about the missions and how they were set up to, you know, convert the Indians and, and, and just really any, any non-believers for the, for that matter. But um, it just makes me think that, that here in Texas, because I'm a convert, people are converting and it seems like in larger numbers in Texas that the, that the mission spirit hasn't really died. You know, that, that, that here in Texas, you know, my responsibility now as a Catholic is to stay on that mission, you know, that, that they started at Goliad at Alamo at the Alamo and, and, in other places, because um, I know, I know the other day on another podcast, we, we had talked about, all the the division in this country what are people going to unify behind and texas has something that for the most part doesn't matter your race people from texas are proud to be texas but will that be enough but will that be enough to hold texas together maybe maybe not but the one thing that we do know that will hold us together is a common belief in in catholicism in the catholic church and the teachings of jesus christ so you know for texas to really prosper in the future is going to have to have that common bond that has yeah. created great civilizations in the past. Here, Absolutely. And that's yeah. the faith. Well, yeah. Is there anything else? I feel like we've uh, hit everything unless uh, anybody else has anything. Connor, I just want to thank you for having us on. This has been a lot of fun and a really fruitful discussion. I've, I felt like it's been edifying and I hope, I hope your audience has felt that way too. <laughs> Me too. I hope they think so as well. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I appreciate I, the invite. I'm very honored too to be here. Definitely enjoyed. Time flew by, um, and just ask for prayers for our country, our nation. Uh, especially if you're watching us out of Texas, we definitely are in a spiritual crux right now here in the Lone Star State, for obvious reasons. So we need your prayers, your rosaries, and just uh, keep fighting the good fight. Yeah. Thank you, Connor, and it was good to meet you, Luis. Pleasure, man. Yeah, awesome guys. Uh, I'm. Uh, to be honest, I'm just honored to have all of you guys on and you guys are welcome back anytime. We'll have to find uh, maybe individual episodes just, uh, you, know, for, you know, with the trad men and with Luis. Uh, I could, there's probably uh, tons of topics we could get into in the future. I think we've proved that just in the nature <laughs> of this conversation. Oh, you guys are going to do trad men. Just make your peace with it. We're going to have you all on the show. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, hey, but- hey. Connor, I noticed one thing that you did on the Midwest show that you haven't done here. 
Oh, you no. talked about Midwest sayings. We should have everybody here <laughs> say their favorite saying that is to Texas itself. My favorite is my favorite is the concept of bidness. Now, B-I-S-B-I-D-N-E-S-S. Now, there's there's a thing that you do when you're about to engage in a commercial transaction with another party. That's called business. But when you're about to take care of some business, <laughs> things are about to get real. All right. That's my favorite one. Business. I don't know. Business was Texan. So we have. So, of course, you have yonder fixing to and all that. But Fixing, my favorite. Yeah. But my favorite came from my grandma. She always grew up saying, you can't water with the hogs and not get muddy. <laughs> I, I, like you have a lot of expressions. My favorite is, uh, it's a silly, but it's the word ain't. Ain't is a word ain't going to say it. Um, especially because I, I, I met a lot of people from, a lot of people from Ireland back in Mexico. I, I just met a lot of foreigners down there. And years later, when they came in, we visit here in Texas, uh, they saw me and like, dude, you sound so much like, like so different. Like you have a lot of those Texas langs and all that. Like, I didn't realize that. I was just like saying y'all and ain't and whatnot. And, uh, um, for those Texans, like I live in Texas and Oklahoma. And once you live in those parts of the country, the show King of the Hill makes a lot more sense. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, so, you know, we have that, that saying here, like, you know, like propane and propane accessories and things like that. It's just like local <laughs> jokes. <laughs> So, yeah, I, I love them. I never, I never realized how how big of a deal it was me saying y'all was until I lived in Wyoming, yeah. and, and everybody was like y'all and y'all Wada, you know? and Whataburger really is what? all it's cracked up to be, man. It is yeah. so good. <laughs> Come on yeah. down and have a Whataburger with us. Yeah, Whataburger. <laughs> yeah, y'all. Yeah. I use it all the time too. So thank y'all. Yeah. Well, Luis, also just like the fa fact that you're sort of. You're at, you have an accent that just changes uh, on sort of a constant almost. And that's, that's yeah. also really awesome. Just uh, oh. half a time, I think, you know, the Mexican uh, comes out, half the Texan, and then just half just it's, general American. It's, it's incredible. Um, it's just whatever, you know, the position I'm in life. So that's just the way it is. I'm like, I'll just run with it, you know. Oh, my Spanish teacher and my Russian teacher when I was in school, both would get so aggravated at me because they're like, you're the only person that I know that speaks Spanish or even Russian with a Texas accent. And I was like, sorry. I, mean, <laughs> I still say, well, I still say orale all the time. So like, not like Chicano Spanish, but like if, if like I'm on the phone with somebody and we're, I'm getting ready to get off the phone real quick. I said, okay, orale. Mm -hmm. Click. <laughs> you know, yeah, that's right. Or, uh, you know, buenas, como estas? You know, and then having a short little conversation, yeah. and then, you know, yeah. okay, orale. You know, and then we'll hang up. So I, I, I do that all the time. That's yeah. funny, man. You said buenas. Yeah, it's the howdy. Anyway, yeah, sorry, buenas. man. We're, we're, <laughs> <laughs> we're milking it, you know, talking about all these Texas things. Yeah. Sorry, Connor. No, you just can't, it can't, I can't handle, uh, or I can't control the Texans. The Midwestern, no, the you Midwest can't. People, you can't. Midwest oh, people man. were easy to manage, even though there were more of them. Uh, there were more, more, more of them. And that's without drinking, man. And, and we're sober right now, dude. You should have come on down. Let's just get some wave. Let's get some tequila and we'll get, get, us, to... get us at a quinceanera party. See oh, what happens. Oh, dude, like, <laughs> the the so bucanas, the bucanas will flow. Let the bucanas flow. Drinking episode, I guess. 
yeah. A, a drinking episode coming next. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no. Um, if, if thank you uh, in the li- for the everyone in the live chat, uh, it's been great. I've been enjoying watching all the different comments and uh, trying to uh, com or trying to respond as much as possible, uh, as well as manage all of this but um please if you haven't liked like share and subscribe